Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we continue our collaboration with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. The Times Talk is a weekly current events and ideas symposium that takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Ina Dillard Russell Library on the campus of Georgia College in downtown Milledgeville. These events are free and open to the public, so if this discussion sparks your interest, please consider coming out and joining the conversation again at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. Today, we're going to be talking about a monumental controversy, Confronting Confederate Symbolism in America. I'm joined in the studio by Georgia College history professors James Trey Wellborn and Craig Pascoe. Trey Wellborn, Craig Pascoe, welcome to Georgia College Connections. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're talking about a topic of conversation pulled straight from the headlines, pulled straight out of the pages of history about these protests and counter-protests concerning Confederate monuments across the South, potentially even across the entire United States, maybe elsewhere. In your Times talk, you're going to be bringing two articles. One's actually an interview, and another is an article. And these are associated with University of Georgia historian James Cobb. I thought I'd start out by asking you to introduce James Cobb and perhaps talk about why you think his writing particularly resonates on this subject. I guess I'll start with that since James Cobb was my dissertation director, so I have a, a bias towards him. Cobb is considered one of the, the top Southern historians in the field. He just retired a couple of years ago, but he's still working very diligently and producing new new works. And he's constantly being referred to or called on by the New York Times uh, and other uh, magazines and newspapers around the country as a, an expert. The thing about Cobb is that the, he's able to distill things into a very readable, manageable way that really gets to the point of things rather than becoming too verbose. I think he speaks with a, a lot of common sense and a lot of background knowledge of the history of the South, and I think that's what makes him a very valuable resource. I would agree. I also have a personal connection to Dr. Cobb. He was on one of my committees in graduate school at the University of Georgia when I was studying for my PhD. So, But I would echo every one of those sentiments. Dr. Cobb is renowned in the profession for his sort of life's work, his, his body of scholarship on Southern identity in a variety of contexts, or so, how Southerners project themselves to each other as well as to the rest of the nation and to the world. So he is a particularly active voice in terms of sort of the public responsibility that historians believe they have, and he's often sought in that sense. So I think he provides a narrative and a context and a, and a background that really allows people to understand this issue in all of its many facets. 
And, and I think I want to mirror y'all's comments and say he's, he's very approachable. In fact, I think my own understanding of the history of our state has benefited from some of his writings. But here we are talking about the South in, in a very live and prescient conversation about how we remember the past in the South. In the interview that y'all are putting forth with James Cobb, it actually appeared on well, one of our sister publications, um, All Things Considered, he starts off talking about a 30-year period in which the majority of these Civil War monuments were erected. I was wondering if we could start on this part of the conversation by talking to the audience about uh, this period of time between 1890 and 1920 and what was going on in the South and, and perhaps even in, across the nation and why that's important in this conversation about Civil War monuments. That period in the South is the period when the Jim Crow segregation South is at its height. Beginning in the late 1880s and really sort of solidifying in the 1890s, segregation as a legal mandate in the South, racial segregation, was in place. So these monuments that are the bulk of them put in place between 1890 and 1920 are really testaments to how successful the white South was in revising the history of the Civil War, its causes, its courses during the war itself, and its consequences, a, a very conscious effort after the war to whitewash the memory of the war, to remove race and slavery as major issues at stake during the war, to glorify white Southern men's role in fighting the war and the cause for which they were fighting. These monuments are reflective of that revisionist history, which was a very conscious effort after the war to control the memory of the war by the white South. So in that sense, they're really more reflective of the time period in which they were put in place than they are of the war itself. Actually, the history that they present in most of their narratives, it's actually bad history. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I'd like to add, too, is the monuments appearing in that period from 1890 to 1920 also represent a need to literally have something publicly there to kind of remind people of who is in charge. 1890, 1920, it's a time of rebuilding. The, the term is used New South. And what's happening is things are happening quickly. Immigration, in-migration, uh, migration from the country to the, to the cities, the growth of the urban areas. And it becomes very confusing. Uh, and in order to maintain that status quo, that segregationist mentality where everybody is in a certain place in society, you had to have symbols. And those monuments were gentle reminders whether we as Southerners didn't win the Civil War, it was a war that was fought for the right reasons. And that's why the term lost cause comes about. Uh, and lost cause was a term that was used to kind of validate why they lost. It was a noble cause, they believed, but something had gone wrong. They had done something wrong. It was never any kind of uh, uh, suggestion, uh, for the most part, that it was because the North had uh, greater uh, manufacturing. They did, and that was one of the major reasons that the South was never going to be able to defeat the North. But the fact was they had to have a justification for why they lost, and that's why the lost cause comes up. That's why monuments come out, because when you're having so much movement from place to place, you have to have something there to show people where you fit into that society. Well— 
We're out of time in this segment, so we're going to take a short break right now. Uh, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. We're having another in our series of collaborations with the American Democracy Project at Georgia College to bring their Times Talk conversations to our radio audience. Today, we're previewing the conversation, A Monumental Controversy, Confronting Confederate Symbolism in America. Joining me in the studio today to talk about it, Georgia College history professors, Trey Wellborn and Craig Pascoe. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more George College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. We're having another one of our Times Talk conversations. This time we are previewing the talk, A Monumental Controversy Confronting Confederate Symbolism in America. I'm joined by Georgia College history professors Craig Pascoe and James Trey Wellborn. One of the things that struck me in the interview was when Cobb calls the monuments construction materials in an effort to rebuild slavery. I was wondering if you could kind of explain that sentiment that he shared in, in the interview. Well, I think they, they were symbols of control. They were reminders to black Southerners that we may have lost the war, but we have redeemed the South. That was the term that they used at the end of construction when blacks and Republicans, especially Republicans that had come down from the North, had taken their place in state legislature. They had whitewashed the South and redeemed it for the whites living in the South. I think what it's going to do is serve as that symbol of power and serve as a really strong reminder. They're monuments to the racial agenda of the white South after the the lost cause was all about redeeming white Southerners, redeeming themselves, what they fought for, and what the consequences of that fight, even though they lost it, were about. And it was a very conscious effort to remove race, to remove slavery as causes and consequences of the war, and to prop up white control, white supremacy at the expense of black rights. Yeah, and, and I think the, the power structure, you mentioned the fact that this might be a way to kind of revert back to some form of, of slavery. And I, I think you see that throughout the, the South in, in various ways. The segregation laws, the Jim Crow laws weren't necessary during slavery because there were codes in place. Everybody knew their place in society, and so there was never a question of it. During this time period, it's questioned because things are different. The rules are different. They're going to ignore those rules, but they want to make sure that everybody in the South knew those rules, not only blacks, but whites as well. You see the, the attempt to control even in the factories as we see more manufacturing coming South. They're treated almost as if they're little plantations in some cases, especially with the mill towns. Even on the shop floor, uh, it's a, a hierarchy where you, know, you had to do your job and you had to work no matter what the conditions were or what, uh, what was happening. You were forced to do that labor or you were out. 
you were castigated from, uh, you know, kicked out of a, a mill meant you were blackballed from that point on. It was a, a form of, of uh, slavery in a way. One of the other interesting things as we talk about symbols is Cobb identifies a split between the use of the Confederate battle flag in the monuments. I was wondering if you might just kind of talk about how these two symbols were used interchangeably throughout this period of Southern history. What I think, and Cobb makes the point in his article, that the flag becomes a much more, in many ways, controversial symbol much earlier because it lends itself to being utilized in public demonstrations. It, it, so anytime there was racial turmoil, white Southerners who were opposed to racial change, especially racial change towards what we would consider racial progress, the Confederate battle flag cropped up. And in the spaces. fact that it's a battle flag. Exactly. It's a, it's a very conscious effort to, we are fighting this. And so the flag, as Cobb says, is a lot easier to hoist up a flag than to hoist up a bust of, you know, Robert E. Lear or Stonewall Jackson. You know, that's that's not feasible logistic. Um, but it also gave birth to this idea of it's it's history, it's not hate. So we can celebrate heritage and separate that from some of the things we're expressing with a symbol like the battle flag. Is that possible? In, in a way, it is, it is history, but it's history connected to hate. It's history to connected to slavery. And that's been the thing that's been very difficult over the years as a teacher of, of Southern history in the fact that people are still being taught that slavery had nothing to, to do with the Civil War. In fact, it did. I mean, the arguments are abound. Oh, it's states' rights. It's this. It's that. It's not slavery. But if you take slavery out of the equation in the South, the South becomes nothing more than a backwards region that's fighting to become just like the North. Even during the, the post-Civil War and into the 20th century, the argument that former slave owners and whites gave is that under slavery, slaves were, were in a better situation than the free wage workers in the North. Anything they could do to diminish or deflect the fact that slavery was inherently evil. Well, just uh, as we have this opportunity, how do we know that the Civil War was actually fought over slavery? If you look at the historical record, what the people seceding from the United States said they were seceding for had everything to do with slavery. And that whole 10-year period of 1850 to 1860 was a fight over how slavery would survive. Mm -hmm. So we could talk all day about different documents <laughs> to point people to that the declarations of secession for each seceding state very explicitly mention slavery, talk about slavery as the focal point of their movement, the secession movement. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gives what's called the cornerstone speech that essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but says that the cornerstone of this new confederacy is the fundamental truth that the white man is superior to the black man. And that's also why you have pockets of resistance or people saying, I don't want to secede. In North Georgia, you had people that would fly the U.S. flag during the Civil War because to them, this war was not their fight because it was a fight between slave owners in the North. The post-war effort to remove slavery and race from causes of the war separates state. Often the argument is the war was about states' rights, not about slavery. If you take slavery out of the states' rights argument in the context of the antebellum period, it makes no sense. States' rights does not make sense as a reason to fight. And I just want to make sure that uh, we lay that out because, I mean, there is still a strong vein of the way that we look at civil war that many people believe has nothing to do with slavery. The popular way of, that it's laid out nowadays in the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the civil war is about battles. 
It's always been about battles, nothing about the home front. And then the past 20 or 30 years, you're beginning to see more and more focus on, on those things and about slavery and the issue of, of blacks and the, the northern you know, military and things like that. But uh, generations of people grew up learning about the Civil War as nothing more than the hardships of Southerners. And they don't mention white. They just say Southerners and the battlefield. So it's really the fact that that argument still so pervasive today that the war wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights, is really a testament to how successful that conscious <laughs> effort by the white South to whitewash the causes of, of the war and its consequences to make it about states' rights, to make it about all of these things that weren't sort of degrading to the white South, to conflate Southern with white Southern, to remove black Southerners from the definition of what it is to be Southern. And, and certainly, especially in, in that period from 1890 to 1920, those monuments that were going up, especially the, the monuments of just the Confederate soldier himself, were done by people that were basically mourning the loss of their family members. They themselves may not have seen the connection. They were more focused on preserving the memory of their family. But it's been co-opted. Uh, and more and more it's been used as an example of white power subtly. And that's where I think Cobb was trying to take us in that article and connecting it to the controversies over the flag because the flag has been used in the same way for a much longer period. So these we're just now paying attention to these monuments as part of that trend mm -hmm. of co-opting the history of the war in a very particular way to present a very particular viewpoint. Yeah, because they, were, they weren't waved in your face. They were, they were static. They just sat in a corner. They sat in a, in a, you know, a nice little green space. Nobody really saw them as anything other than a statue. Well, we're going to take another short break now. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Today, we're previewing tomorrow's Times Talk. It is entitled, A Monumental Controversy, <laughs> Confronting Confederate Symbolism in America. I'm joined in the studio by Georgia College history professors Trey Wellborn and Craig Pascoe. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Of course, we're having another of our Times Talk conversations. Please consider this your invitation to come out and join these discussions, which take place at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. They're free and open to the public, so please come on out and enjoy these conversations or join in them yourself. Today we're talking about the Times Talk entitled A Monumental Controversy, Confronting Confederate Symbolism in America. I'm joined by Georgia College history professors Trey Wellborn and Craig Pascoe. And I want to go back to that interview with James Cobb in that he confesses, quote, a certain nervousness about sanitizing the historical landscape, unquote. 
But he says that he believes the monuments must be removed from public spaces. I was wondering if y'all could give us some context about the nervousness this colleague feels and, and maybe let us into your own thinking about this controversy. I think when we started the, this whole process, we found out we were going to do this. I looked at Trey and said, you know, I had a knee-jerk moment there where I thought, I don't want to get rid of those monuments because I had grown up with them. And, you know, of course, they didn't mean to me what it means to an African-American. But when I got my senses about me, it took about a second, I realized that, yeah, there is a, a reality that these things are, are a symbol of something other than history, whether they've been co-opted or actually built as a way to preserve the, uh, that white supremacy. It didn't really matter. It was that I didn't want to change. You know, people don't like change. And if you're someone that's uh, convinced that Confederacy was for all the right reasons, then that probably is going to be even more difficult for you to accept. I think that the whole question about the uneasiness that we'll lose our history is maybe a little overblown because where we lose our history is in the classroom and the lack of education, historical education, of not only our area, our region, our nation, but the world in, in general. And I think that's where the real problem lies. I don't think removing statues is actually going to, to harm the history of the pa or the past in any way, shape, or form. I agree. My take on this very similarly shared that sort of anxiety about what Cobb calls sanitizing the landscape for similar reasons. But to me, I don't think removing is the only option, but I think it's probably the most likely to accomplish the ends that historians want to see happen with these monuments, which is to contextualize them, to tell the entire story. These monuments are reflective of a very biased, revisionist history of the Civil War from a particular moment in time. They're reflective of that moment, 1890, 1920, but more broadly, sort of the post-war period, um, and the white perspective. So for me, with if we're going to keep them in place as public monuments, they have to represent the public if they're going to stay on public property. And in that way, I think we could revise them, but I think the revision process is going to have to be a very honest confrontation of some very uncomfortable truths in the historical record. I don't know that that's going to happen. So I think most historians are more comfortable saying, let's remove them, mm -hmm. put them in cemeteries. If we're going to keep them in public, maybe put them in museums. If we're going to keep them in public, maybe put them in cemeteries in the Confederate section of the cemetery. I've seen other historians sort of raise those possibilities. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't see any way for people to come to a compromise on how to historicize or, or interpret those uh, monuments. The, there will be constant argument about a wording and about focus and, and things like that. So I think moving them elsewhere. And again, I don't think it's going to hide our history. The American Historical Association came out very early with a statement about this and actually said that you know the fear that this is the beginning. Next will be George Washington, then Thomas Jefferson, and they pointed out that the difference is that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, although they were flawed in uh, numerous ways, they were the creators of this nation. And, and by doing so, they really shouldn't be ostracized or, or hidden away because they were people of their time. They had those flaws, but they were creating. They weren't trying to destroy the United States. So, so they can be memorialized for what they accomplished, and we can still confront sort of their flaws as human beings. But we have to do that through education. Yes. A, a statue with a little bit of blurb below it does not give people enough information or puts into a context where people can understand what it really means. In this nation, do we do a good job of uh, addressing complexity and nuance like that, which we are talking about in this conversation? No. No. <laughs> 
as a general rule. No, and, and unfortunately, a lot of it has to do with with the time allotted to teach things like uh, American history. Uh, it gets less and less every year. It gets kind of pushed to the side in uh, place of other things. And, and I think we've created an environment, an educational environment on things like history and maybe some other disciplines where it's more of a factoid-based uh, uh, learning experience rather than concept and, and theory, which... Sometimes I think they don't give kids enough credit for, or maybe the teachers just don't have the, the time allotted to be able to, to pull that off. And that is a whole nother conversation that would be very appropriate for this venue. Just one last uh, thought about, you know, the future of these monuments. You know, there's been this talk about putting them into the museums. What would those museums be about? I think in order to contextualize, which is what all historians want, to do with these monuments. They are historical artifacts and they're important historical artifacts, but where they are now, they're not accomplishing as historical sources what historians use historical sources to accomplish. So by putting them in a museum, you're putting them in the broader context of the causes, the courses, the consequences of the Civil War that, that they are obviously very consciously referencing. So, Especially with the uh, ownership of these monuments, many of them are actually not public property, they're actually like donations or even owned by the organizations that put them up. Would that just be sending this argument to another playing field in which we have this argument all over again about museums that either further this lost cause line of thinking or ones that force audience members to have a really hard-fought conversation about what these are really artifacts of? Well, the first problem is that the ownership you can extend that into city, county, state. And many states like Georgia passed uh, laws recently in the past few years that prohibited the removal of those monuments. Right now in the city of Decatur, the city of Decatur wants to remove the monument from the, the square. But the only problem is it's under the control of the county. And then, of course, you've got the overlying Georgia uh, law that prevents them from doing that. So everybody's scrambling, trying to figure out ways to do it. Even those that want to do it, the political leaders are going, you know, we, we want to do this, but we can't. We're not allowed to. And of course, that backlash is, is pretty immediate saying, well, find a way to do it. Uh, and I, I think going into a museum, like uh, Trey was saying, is probably the only way that this will be accomplished in, in preserving these monuments, because I don't see any other place for them to go. You can't have a Confederate monument park, because in fact, that just kind of increases the importance of them as far as uh, their interpretation is uh, is part of slavery. In some ways, creating a Confederate monument park would be akin to what South Carolina did with the Confederate flag on the top of the state house. They took it off the state house <laughs> and then put it out front where it was far more visible <laughs> to everyone in Columbia, South Carolina. So it eventually became a much more divisive. I think that would be a very similar response from the public. On the road to um, social equality, where I, I think we would like to be a, as a nation, how useful is this argument? I think it, it brings up the, the topic. Uh, I think monuments themselves and taking the monuments down will solve nothing. I think it's just basically an easy way to get to a solution that doesn't solve a problem. It enables us as a society to continue to punt the issue, which is <laughs> confronting our very uncomfortable racial past. So I think that's why most historians feel the need to use this moment in some way to confront that past. Now, as y'all go into your Times talk tomorrow, what do you hope your audience takes from the conversation? I'd like for them to look at it rationally, to try to take as much emotion out of the, the issue as possible, 
and to think at first I thought this is a, a discussion where people have already chosen sides and there's no way that they're going to, to change. But if you can calmly look at it and understand it for what it is, then maybe there are people that are willing to say, yeah, they do need to be moved or something needs to be done to ameliorate this issue. I'm hoping that that's what they're going to come away with. I kind of doubt that we'll have any converts. Uh, we might even convert people in the opposite direction. I don't know. This is such a polarizing issue that people tend to not listen until they hear something that confirms their perspective on these things, these types of symbols. So the hope would be that by presenting with our familiarity as professional historians with the historical record, sort of correcting that long history of sort of a biased revisionist history. But I agree. I, I think it's a it's a tough sled. And, and, and just real quickly, I, I think what people don't understand is that history itself, the interpretation of it is not static. It's not the same way from generation to generation. We reinterpret things as we learn more about it and as we grow as a nation, that our soul becomes a little more pure. Mm -hmm. We're able to look back and go, this is something we should be ashamed of, uh, but we need to learn from it and move on. History is a never-ending series of sort of reinterpretations and conversations about those interpretations and the sources they're based on. So uh, I think reconceptualizing what we think history is as a society, it's not an absolute truth that's to be unveiled. It's, it's a series of conversations that are ongoing. You've been listening to a Times Talk edition of Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I was joined in the studio today by Georgia College history professors Craig Pascoe and James Wellborn, who will be facilitating the conversation on monumental controversy confronting Confederate symbolism in America at tomorrow's Times Talk. Of course, the Times Talk takes place at noon Wednesdays in the Georgia College Library. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It's been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you soon.